Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. It's good to be in the presence of Jesus. It's good to know that the presence of Jesus is not just confined to Sunday evening in a church building, but that the presence of Jesus goes with us. We carry the Spirit of God. We carry the presence of Jesus in us, each one of us who are followers of Jesus. And I love to hear the stories of how you are recognizing the presence of Jesus in your life. I get to hear a lot of them, and it's really cool. So I am closing out our series on James. Can we give a shout for how awesome this series has been? Yeah. I got a new Bible in January, and so it didn't have a lot of notes in it, and now James is completely full. There was so much good stuff in there. Chris opened us up four weeks ago with James 1, and he, he taught us a lot about James, and he taught me some things I didn't know about James. Um, he, we found out that he is the half-brother of Jesus, so Mary and Joseph were James' parents, And, um, you know, we also discovered that James did not actually believe that Jesus was the Son of God until later on in his life. I want you to think about this. Imagine growing up with Jesus, who never sinned, as your sibling. Can we say horrible? Like, there's Jesus over there never doing anything wrong. Like, Jesus stayed in, stayed at the temple, and we went three days down the road, and he didn't even get in trouble for it. Like, that would have been difficult. But I think some of us do that as well. We look at someone that we see out there, and we say, well, I could never live up to that person in my life, or I could never be like them, so I'm just not even going to try. Or we look at someone and say, I could never pray like that person prays, so I'm just not even going to pray. And we compare ourselves to someone else who might be a little bit further ahead in the journey. What about this one? I won't ever be the boss, so I'm not even going to try to be excellent at my job. You know, I think James probably had some of those feelings before he encountered the power of the Holy Spirit and began to believe in who Jesus really was. As we read James' writings and we begin to learn about who he was, we understand how he overcame his unbelief. And we understand how he became someone who impacted the kingdom of God in such a powerful way. This little book of James here, I think we're like we've, we've kind of taken it for granted. And yet James was a powerful force for the kingdom of God in the early church days. So we have James here who didn't believe, and then we have James who did believe. There's always a moment from unbelief to belief. 1 Corinthians tells us that Jesus himself even appeared to James in the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension back up into heaven. He was only here 40 days, and he showed up to James. Jesus knew the impact James was going to have on the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 15 says, He also appeared to more than 500 of his followers at the same time. Skipping forward a little bit. Then he appeared to Jacob, which we learned was also James's name, and to all the apostles. Someday I'm going to ask James, what happened there? 
What did Jesus say to you? We also know, some of you may not know this, but James, along with Peter, remember Peter and the 11 apostles stepped forward and started what? The church, right? James also was a leader of the early church of the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. He and Peter, they led side by side. And his writings, this book of James that we've been studying over the last several weeks, are primarily meant for the Jews in Jerusalem. They're meant for people who already knew Jesus, who were attending the church, who were part of the followers of Jesus. So it would be like me standing up here today and speaking to all of you, or me writing something to you as followers of Jesus. You know, and James does not hold back. We found that out. Like, he is not PC. For sure, would have been canceled today. You know, he just tells it like it is. He says what people need to hear, not what they want to hear. Some of us want to hear all of the nice things, but what we actually need to hear is the truth. In verses 1 through 5, he calls them out on gluttony. He calls them out on how they spend their money. He calls them out on how much they love the things that their money buys them. And he says, you're more concerned with satisfying their own, your own desires than you are taking care of those who are in need. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to James. We're in chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 first. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all of the terrible troubles ahead of you. That's a sad message. <laughs> your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you are counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. He's just straight up calling out their idolatry. And then we go on to verses 7 through 11. And he reminds them, you have to be patient as you wait for the Lord's return and you have to have courage. And then he says, you have to stop grumbling with each other. I read that and I was like, oh, <laughs> that one kind of hurt because <laughs> I've done some grumbling this week. Actually, I did a lot of grumbling this week. Listen to this. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. He's saying, be patient with those who don't know the Lord yet. That's what the harvest is that he's talking about. Be patient with all the people that don't yet know what it is you're talking about. And then he's saying, be patient with those who do. Be patient with your brothers and sisters. He says, don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters. So I can't grumble about you. I should not be grumbling about you, and you should not be grumbling about me. But we do, don't we? So we could end right there, and that would be enough, because that's, that's a lot. 
And I didn't want to not mention those first nine verses of James 5, because if that's something you struggle with, gluttony, love of money, idolatry of your wealth, grumbling, maybe criticizing either those who don't know the Lord or those who do, now you know where to go to get some help with that. But what really caught my attention when I read this chapter 5 of James over and over and over again was verses 13 through 18. And this is what that says. Are any of you suffering hardships? No one? Let me ask that again. It's a question mark on the end. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other. Youch. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. And this is what I begin to sense as I read those verses, 13 through 18. We must become a people that pray. I think we've gotten by for a long time as people without prayer. We pray. We pray before we eat. We pray with our kids before they go to bed. We send up flare prayers. What do we need a parking spot? (laughs) You know you do it. But we've lived a long time now where we've counted on the prayer warriors to do the heavy lifting. And it's actually up to all of us. And it is a matter of life and death. And we have to remove this idea that there are only some who are called to pray. It is all of us that are called to pray. And in this church, we will always have a culture that is a prayer culture. A few months ago, we realized we were using the wrong words when we would invite you up to the front. And we would say, we will have people up here to pray for you. And we realized that that limited those who did not feel like they were called to pray. And so now we say, come forward, anyone who feels led to come up and pray is welcome to come up here and pray because every single one of you has the power of God to be able to pray over those who are in need. I think it's good for us to know, too, that James did not just talk the talk. He actually walked the walk. In some ancient writings that aren't in the Bible, but they're historically accurate, it says that James would go to the Jewish temple And he spent so much time on his knees praying 
that his knees became hard and calloused like camel's knees. That's a lot of prayer. So when he talks about prayer, he knows from experience what fervent and earnest prayer will do. So we're going to break this down just a little bit more. Verse 13. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. I will be honest with you. I pray, but I don't pray the way I need to pray. A couple weeks ago, I was watching an episode of This Is Us. I don't condone everything that goes on, just saying, in that show. But Uncle Nicky, I'm sorry if I'm spoiling this for some of you. Get over it. Uncle Nicky was in Vietnam, and he was a broken man. And he had spent much of his life in isolation with deep wounds. And he had gotten to know his nephew, and his nephew had had children and he was going to go fly on an airplane across the country, for, fly on an airplane for the first time since 1971. In 2001, we all know what that means. Security checkpoints, wearing a mask, all the things. And Uncle Nicky had, he said, I can't go empty-handed. And so he had hand-carved these beautiful little wooden figurines. And he had painted them. And they were animals and soldiers. I'm not sure what all. And he had put them inside a snow globe, one for each child. And he had packed them up. And he had showed him being so careful to wrap them all up. And as he gets to security checkpoint, the, the, the lady, the TSA agent's like, sir, you can't take that on. And he's like, what do you mean I can't take it on? She said, you can't have more than three ounces of liquid. And he's like, well, fine, then I'll dump it out. And so he goes to the trash can to take the water out of the globe, and it falls on the ground, and it shatters. And he picks them up, and he throws them in the trash. And the pain on his face made me want to weep. The hurt that he was feeling in that moment. I know it's a TV show, but let's just be real, real. That is real life for so many people. And as I look around this room, I look at so many of you, and I know the suffering you're going through. It's a lot. And I have the honor for many of you to be able to share the things that you're suffering with me. And I'll be honest, sometimes knowing so much of the suffering that all of you are going through feels absolutely impossible to burden, to bear on my shoulders. And I don't have to. But I'm human, and sometimes I take it on. And the Holy Spirit, when I was watching Uncle Nicky, and I started to think about all of you, and I started to think about the hard, hard things that so many of you in this room are going for, and I heard the Holy Spirit say, but do you really pray about it? See, we can pray when we are suffering, and we can pray for those who are suffering. We live in a world, we all have struggles in this room, and we live in a world that is so full of suffering. They need us to be people that pray. How many times do you feel absolutely helpless in a situation? Do you pray, or do you just go on feeling helpless? I don't always pray. Sometimes I just let my shoulders get heavier and heavier with the weight I think it's time for many of us that we change how we pray. 
Some of us, I think we even might pray once or maybe twice, maybe three times. But when it goes on much longer than that and we don't see a change or we don't see the answer, we stop praying. There have been things in my life that I've been praying for for 20 years. We stop when we say, man, it just feels like it's not working. But I want to show you something. You can flip in your Bibles to Matthew or your screens to Matthew 17. It's the transfiguration. It's a story we know very well. And I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, different James. These were the apostles, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. So these two disciples and Jesus have had this incredible encounter on the mountaintop, and then they've come down the mountain, and that's where we pick up. At the foot of the mountain, a large crowd was waiting for them. A man came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. Jesus said, you faithless and corrupt people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. And I I want you to imagine Jesus wasn't saying that in a condemning way. It wasn't a condemning tone that you or I might have used. Like, seriously? I have to help you out again? Jesus' tone would have been one of tenderness and kindness and compassion. At the same time, conviction. Then Jesus rebuked the demon in the boy and it left him. From that moment on, the boy was well. Afterward, the disciples asked Jesus privately, why couldn't we cast out that demon? You don't have enough faith, Jesus told them. I tell you the truth, if you had had faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. Some translations say, because of your little faith. Now, that word in there, you didn't have enough faith, you had too little faith, doesn't mean it was too small. You know, we often think like, oh, I don't, I need, my faith needs to be bigger. It actually means the duration of your faith. It means the season was too short. It means it didn't last long enough. Not that it was too small. I have the gift of faith. It's a, it's a gift God has given me from the time I was born. I believe that God can do anything. Why doesn't he do it all the time for me? Often because my faith didn't last long enough. They gave up too soon. They quit when they didn't get their answers as quickly as they wanted. Some of you have prayed twice for something and it hasn't been answered, so you stopped praying Your knees are still smooth. I heard Pastor Bill Johnson say that this week, and man, it just, he said, we pray enough to ease our conscience, 
but not enough to make a difference. Someone complains about something, and I've said it, and I've heard some of you say it, and he said, well, God's just not showing up for me. God hasn't answered my prayer. God hasn't done this, or this is going wrong. I don't know why I can't get breakthrough in this thing in my life. And someone might say, well, have you prayed about it? Well, yeah, I prayed about it. Did you pray enough just to ease your conscience? Or did you pray until there was a difference? Some of you, I quit praying before my prayers make a difference. I'm pretty good at the, like, talk to God throughout the day kind of praying. I I do that pretty well. I pray with my kids before bed. We pray before meals. I'm not so good at the earnest, fervent prayers, the kind where my knees become calloused because I haven't given up on praying for a matter. I think this is actually partly what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 6, where he's just told us, put on all this armor. He's given us all this military gear to wear. And then he ends it with this. Listen to it in the Passion Translation. Pray passionately in the Spirit as you constantly intercede, listen, with every form of prayer at all times. So there are flare prayers. There are, yes, prayers for protection before you go to sleep with your kids. Prayers of thanksgiving. Prayers of blessing as, you, as you're getting ready to eat a meal. And then there are prayers where you're down on your knees or you're laying on your face and you don't give up until you see a difference. Constantly intercede with every form of prayer at all times. Prayer is how we endure the suffering we are in. It is the secret weapon that we have for our burdens and for other people's burdens. And we must become a a church. We must become a people that pray. And not just people who pray, but pray until our knees become calloused. Until We see a difference. But then verse 13 keeps on going. It says, along with prayer goes this other thing called praise. Going back to James 5. Are any of you happy? You're a little slow. (laughs) Let's try that again. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. As I was reading through this, I once again heard the Holy Spirit say it is about prayer and praise. And if you look through scripture, prayer and praise are almost always together. They go together like coffee and cream. Some of you disagree with that. They go together like chips and salsa. They go together like Chris and Heather. (laughs) I know, you knew that was coming. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 17 says, Always be joyful, never stop praying. Always be joyful, never stop praying. And one of my favorites, Isaiah 63, 61, 3, it's a longer passage, but to shorten it, it says, Praise takes away a spirit of heaviness. You feel heavy, start singing some praises. And then I love these two stories. There's so much power here. In Acts 12, go to Acts with me if you have your Bible. 
the church um, is being persecuted. So Jesus has gone back up to heaven, and they in, endure. Uh, they have a time where you know it's it's really great, and then some persecution just starts taking over in Jerusalem. And James, not this James, John's brother James, has been killed. And it so riled up and stirred up the crowd that the, the leader, the, the king of that time, he was like, this is awesome, go arrest Peter. Because he wanted the people's uh, approval. So, reading in Acts 12 at verse 5. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. That night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he fell asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly there was a bright light in the cell, and the angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, Quick, get up. And the angel's like, <laughs> The chains fell off his wrists. And the angel told him, get dressed and put on your sandals. And, and he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. I love that God is so detailed. Like he just didn't lead him out barefoot without a coat. Like God knows every single detail that we need. So Peter left the cell following the angel, but all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first and the second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city, and this opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street, and then the angel suddenly left him. And this is my favorite part of the whole story. Peter finally came to his senses, and he went, it's really true. Like he's standing in the middle of the road. He's like, wow, it actually happened. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door in the gate, and the servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside, left Peter out there, and told everyone, Peter's at the door! You are out of your mind, they said, yet they had been praying for him. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. When they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down and told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers what happened, he said. And they went on to another place. That would be our James that we're studying. Because the other James was already dead. James was the one who was helping Peter lead the church. At dawn, there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him, and when he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and sends them to death. Listen, this is so good, you guys. Afterward, Herod left Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. Do you want to know who was ordering the persecution of the believers in Jerusalem at that time? Herod Agrippa. What happened when the church prayed and Peter was released from prison? Herod Agrippa left town. You cannot tell me that our fervent prayers as a church do not shift what is happening in government, what is happening in our cities, what is happening in the supernatural and the natural. He left town. 
Then we read in Acts 16, there are once again some apostles that are in prison, and this time it's Paul and Silas who've been put in prison. They were falsely accused, sounds familiar, (laughs) and the town mob had turned on them, and the city officials had put them in prison. So we're going to flip over to Acts 16, and we're going to read verse 25 through 39. Paul and Silas are in prison. Listen to what they were doing. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly there was a massive earthquake and the prison was shaken to its foundation. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. You think God likes to set people free? This is like twice in a really close amount of time. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted at him, stop, don't kill yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. Like they got a lot done in a short amount of time. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. Gets better. The next morning, the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, let those men go. So the jailer told Paul, the city officials have said, you and Silas are free to leave. Go in peace. But Paul replied, "Mm -mm -mm -mm. you have publicly beaten us without a trial and put us in prison, and we are Roman citizens. And now they want us to leave secretly? Certainly not. Let them come here themselves to release us. When the police reported this, the city officials were so alarmed to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to the jail and, listen, apologized to them. Then they brought them out and begged them to leave the city. When Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia. There they met with the believers and encouraged them once more. Then they left town. So we have a story where uh, the city officials apologize for the wrongdoing that they had done. I believe it is because Paul and Silas and the church were praying and praising God. See, the prayers of God's people shift things. They move them from here to here. And prayer and praise go together and they shift the atmosphere. And then, just to wrap up this part of James, we've seen this here a lot over the last seven years and we've seen it even just in the last couple of weeks. This is verse... um, 14 and 16. Are any of you sick? 
You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. We know that God heals. We know he is a God who heals. We have seen that with our very own eyes. There were testimonies again this week of people being healed, and we will see more. We will see more and more and more and more. So James knew what was required for those that followed Jesus. He knew this from ancient stories and prophets that had been passed on to him, and he knew it from examples that Jesus had shown him when he was here on earth. James 5, 16 and 17 says this. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. And then listen to what he adds. Elijah was as human as we are. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then he prayed again and the sky sent down rain and earth began to yield its crops. So Elijah had just had this incredible encounter with the prophets of Baal where he had won and like won big, okay? There was no doubt about who just won that, that battle. And he, has, um, he had prayed before that, three and a half years before that, that there would be no rain as punishment for the evil that was going on in the kingdom. And there had been no rain. There was a massive drought. So then we're going to just read this real quick in, in 1 Kings 19. Elijah says to Ahab, he was the king, okay, he's just had this incredible victory, he says, to, he says to Ahab the king, go get something to eat and drink, for I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. The rain wasn't on its way yet, but the faith that Elijah had, knowing the God that he served, he said, I hear it. And for some of you, you maybe haven't even prayed about that thing yet, but if you listen closely, you can hear the victory that is coming. You can hear the, hearing, the healing that is coming. You can hear the breakthrough that is coming. It says, so Ahab went to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel and bowed low to the ground and prayed with his face between his knees. Then he said to his servant, go and look out toward the sea. The servant went and looked and returned to Elijah and said, I don't see anything. Seven times, Elijah told him to go and look. He had already heard it. Finally, the seventh time, the servant told him, I saw a little cloud about the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. Then Elijah shouted, hurry to Ahab and tell him, climb into your chariot and go back home. If you don't hurry, the rain will stop you. And soon the sky was black with clouds. A heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm, and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Listen to this. It's so cool. Then the Lord gave special strength to Elijah. He tucked his cloak into his belt and ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. He outran a horse and chariot. He's like, I don't want to get wet. <laughs> Do you remember who was on the mountaintop of the transfiguration right before the disciples got schooled in not having enough faith? Elijah. You know those stories, those ancient stories of Elijah had been passed down and had probably been sensationalized a little bit and they thought he was godlike. And then the stories from the transfiguration, you know those got shared. Like, guys, we were on the mountain. 
you would not believe who was up there. It was Elijah and Moses. Like we were up there with them. I think that's why James puts that in here. Because they had talked about Elijah a lot. And he says, Elijah was as human as we are. Yet look at what his prayers did. See, we have these special weapons of prayer and praise, but they only work if we use them. That alarm system that's in your home, it only works if you activate it. Church, it is time to activate our prayer and our praise. It is time. We absolutely have to. The devil is not even hiding anymore. I would like to suggest that this is going to require a change of posture. It is going to require a change of posture of our hearts. I want to ask you this. Do you find joy in the answers that you get when you pray? Or do you just find joy in having spent time with Jesus? See, the posture of our hearts determine the outcome of our prayers. Are you praying from a place of selfishness or are you praying from a place of, God, I just want to know you. I just want to be with you. Your will be done, not mine. I would also like to challenge us that this kind of prayer and this kind of praise might require a different physical posture as well. Look at what I found from all these stories that we read today. James' posture when he prayed was on his knees. Elijah's posture when he prayed for rain, if you remember, was bowed low to the ground with his face between his legs. Some of us are praying when it suits us, when it's easy. And our posture doesn't represent surrender to an almighty God who deserves us to be completely surrendered. Jesus' posture when he went to the garden to pray before his arrest and his crucifixion was this. Listen to this, Mark 14. They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. He knew what was coming. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And then it says, he went a little further. And listen, he fell to the ground. He was the son of God. And yet he was man. And he prostrated himself before the almighty God. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible with you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet, I want your will, not mine. See, the posture of Jesus' heart when he prayed was one not of what I want, but what you want, God. And the posture of his body was one of surrender. I am not talking about this in a legalistic way, like you can only pray if you're kneeling by your bed. That is the exact opposite of what I'm talking about. I'm talking about maybe the posture of your heart and even the posture of your body 
needs to change a little bit in order for your prayers to start working to make a difference. For some people, it's taking a walk. For some people, it's by their bed. For, and I'm not even going to tell you how to do it because that is the Holy Spirit's job. And what if we aren't seeing our prayers answered because the posture of our hearts and the posture of our bodies needs to be surrendered? What if we worked on our posture and we continued praying past the point of being comfortable? What if we prayed longer and more earnestly than we have ever prayed before? What if we postured our bodies in a way that actually showed we were surrendered? What might change in your life? What might be healed? What might be redeemed? What might change in our cities and in our nation? Who might you influence? What demonic force might you drive out? Because your posture has changed. It is time, church. We must become a church that prays and praises about everything. You know how James died? It was around 66 AD. And the Pharisees were still pretty messed up about this Jesus person. And they were persecuting his followers. And they had assembled the Sanhedrin, which was a group of religious leaders. The church leaders. And they tried to trick James into renouncing that Jesus was the Son of God. Remember, he was known as the leader of the church, the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. They commanded him, denounce that Jesus is the Messiah. And instead, listen to what he said. Jesus is the son of God and the judge of the world. And then the incited crowd, the incited crowd began to throw stones at him. And James fell to his knees and he died in a posture that he was used to. What if the posture that we practice right now prepares us for the thing that we have to endure in the future? As he was being stoned to death, he was praying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He was following the lead of his brother, his Savior, Jesus Christ. Those are the same words that Jesus spoke when he was on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. What if our posture has to change? And what if we become a people that pray and praise like we have never, never done before? Church, we have too much to lose if we don't. We have too many battles right now to fight for that we cannot do on our own. The only way that it will shift, the only way that it will change is if the posture of our heart and the posture of our bodies shift. Will you close your eyes? Holy Spirit, I thank you that your presence is here in this room. I thank you for your tenderness and your mercy. I thank you for the conviction, God. Would you just begin to stir something up in us, Jesus? Something that we've never felt before, boldness. A surrender, a surrender that isn't passive, but a surrender that is bold, that I will give everything. God, would you cause our knees to become calloused because we have been on them seeking out your will, Father, not ours. 
God, we want to see marriages saved in this place. We want to see people healed and set free. We want to see wounds and broken people that are totally redeemed and restored. God, we want to see the lost come to you. We want to see the prodigals return to their families. And that happens when your people who are called by your name bow low and surrender and say, Lord, do what only you can do. Make us a people who pray and praise. If we are suffering hardship, we pray. If we are happy, we praise. If we are sick, we call on people and we say, would you pray for me? We confess our sins one to another and we pray for one another. This is the cry of our hearts, Lord, that we would be a people who pray. Thank you for these moments, Jesus.